The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's neat to notice the, I always say, it's just great to notice the blossoming and then the fading of that social energy. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of our practice is to be right in the middle of our lives and uh, not to be afraid of when the moment's asking us to kind of be a human being in relationship with others, responding, sometimes even having to speak up loud or, you know, put on our adult voice or speak truth to power, and sometimes really yielding. And it's just interesting to... Like, think, oh, I need to be this way or I need to be that way. But in sort of Buddhist terms, we want all of the potentialities to be ready to play themselves out because we don't know what the moment's going to ask for moment by moment by moment. So we don't want to be afraid of being quiet. We don't want to be afraid of speaking up and asserting. So it's interesting, you know, like having sat for 35 minutes and then that invitation to connect with those around you. And uh, just for some of you, it might be wanting to protect the quiet and the, you know, the calm that you might, that might have arisen in the practice. And you can say, oh, that's just attachment. I'm not afraid to lose it. I'm not afraid to let it go. Because whatever we found in our practice, it can come back, right? If we did it once, we can do it again. And that way we don't get greedy. Because sometimes you see in uh, meditation circles, people getting greedy about their meditation. And you can see it, it's like somebody moves in the meditation (laughs) home. Sort of shoot bullets through your eyes at them. How could you disturb my meditation? As if that would be somehow a good habit to be developing, like hating people whose cell phones go off or who have to sneeze or, you know, whatever, have a itch they don't know how to work with. So they sort of rustle their nylon jacket or something like that. And we have that same attitude about our own distractions. So for the next couple of weeks, we're beginning uh, um, to look at the hindrances, and uh, these are the five qualities. I mean, you could come up with your own list, but you'll see it's a pretty good list. Works well enough. It doesn't have to be a perfect list. These are the five, or it's way of categorizing ways that our habits hinder samadhi or hinder the stability of mindful awareness, the balance the collectedness, the stillness of the mind. What is it that arises? What habit energies arise and disturb the natural balance of the mind? And it's really good to think of samadhi. I think it's useful to use the Pali word because we don't really have a, a good equivalent. For a long time, they, started, uh, they translated the word samadhi as concentration, but it's not a really good translation because for most of us the word concentration implies like I'm holding my attention on something and using a mental tension like oh I'm not going to deviate I'm just going to stay right there with this theme 
But samadhi really is more about a, a beautiful balance where the energies of the mind that are normally distracted or superficial or dissipated, fragmented, they are gathered, they're collected, they unify. So there's a lot of brightness in samadhi. It's not a dull state of mind. It's an energetic state, but the energy doesn't neurotically need to do anything. So we, like in scientific terms, you'd say the energy of the mind is in a potential state. It's not afraid to do something, but it doesn't have to do anything. And in Buddhist terms, the, the word gets translated as wieldy or nimble or workable. The mind's workable. It's willing to work, but it doesn't have to work. So if it has to solve a problem, it will solve it. But if there no problem needs to be solved, the mind, the brightness of the mind is just stable. It's just clear. And so... That mind is a mind that can see things as they are. It's a mind that can understand the underlying nature of things because it doesn't have an agenda. And the other characteristic of samadhi, this balance of mind, is it feels good. It's just on an emotional, psychological level, it's healing to have samadhi. In the same way that it's you know, not just disturbing, but eventually it's psychologically... Uh, you know, it's, we can actually get sick, both mentally and physically, if our mind is agitated for a long time. That's why to really be healthy, you need deep sleep, because with deep sleep, you put down all of that agitation. Well, we can do it in a wake, in a, in a wake state, too, with samadhi, where the mind has put down things. Now, then, the interesting question in terms of our practice is, well, what arises to hinder that beautiful balance, that steadiness, that's, that stability of mind. What hinders it? And then here's an even more important question. How should I relate to those things that hinder, that agitate, that disturb samadhi? Right? Do we hate them? I mean, you know the answer. The Buddha made this very clear. One of the more famous lines in the Buddhist teachings is, Hatred does not cease through hatred, but through love alone. This is the eternal truth. So aversion to what's agitating the mind is more aversion, I mean more agitation rather. So it's really about understanding. It's willing to be close to the hindrances. So the simple formula is, like in terms of what feeds reinforces the hindrances, and what weakens them is what feeds the hindrances is misunderstanding them, meaning we get identified. So if I have some aversion going on in my mind or some greed, or if I'm identified with the dullness in my mind or identified with the worries in my mind, the anxiety in my mind, if I'm caught up in doubt and identified with it, then that's going to feed it. So the food, the nutriment for the hindrances, those patterns that agitate the mind, that hinder the stability of mind, the way we feed them is we get identified with the hindrance itself, with the distraction itself. We take it personally. It feels personally like we need to get agitated. Like You can see how, from a distance, how... You really get, that doesn't help. 
Like if somebody, did somebody's phone go off today in the room? I forget. But anyway, let's say somebody's phone went off during the sit today. And, uh, or somebody cuts you off in traffic. Or somebody said they're going to do something and then they don't show up. They're going to meet you here. There you are. They're not there. You wait. They don't show up. And it seems to make so much sense to get angry or to be irritated at the person or to vent. Maybe we're skillful enough not to send them an angry text, but just even in our own mind. I noticed I had a few thoughts about my partner. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like I'm perfect or she's perfect. I think we both get that we're not perfect. But what's interesting is, like, why would my mind want to pick up some detail and spin with it? It's like, is it, does it help her or does it help me? Does it help anybody? No. It's just painful. It's just agitation for my mind. And to whatever degree it leaks out of my relationship to my partner, it causes suffering for both of us. But yet, it makes so much sense to get angry, to get irritated, or to be greedy, or to be you know, thinking about, oh, if only, then I'd be happy. I mentioned this morning, you know, like somebody, I mean, how many of us th- have thought about you know, winning the lottery or somebody dropping off a couple suitcases of unmarked $100 bills? <laughs> and it's just like, not that we have any you know, thought you know, rationally that that's actually going to happen, but it, still, it's like the greed in the mind. Like, but if it did happen, what would I do with all that money? Well, I guess I'd have to be generous. So, <laughs> and, But when we look at it, when we step back, we look at it, we realize, oh, that's, that hurts. Spinning in those kind of thoughts, the stickiness, the mind that feels like I need to think this through, that just hurts. And we can really see that that's unnecessary. So the key for us with these, you know, as we begin to become more fluent in recognizing what hinders the stability mind, is like what feeds it and what starves it. How do we keep adding to the agitation in the mind so that we spend our lives in a superficial way, in an agitated way, you know, superficial in, in the sense of like the mind, the attention flitting about, never really settling, never really being intimate, connecting, always leaning forward into what we want, always pushing away what we don't want. You know how we can, when our mind is dull, right, this is one of the hindrances, we identify with it, right? We start telling ourselves a story. My mind is dull. I'm so tired. I haven't had good sleep. I can't do this. Well, is thinking those thoughts helping with the dullness in the mind? No. I mean, we know that, you know what's true about dullness is if when you're feeling dead to the world and dull, what happens if you start doing something? Someone calls you up and says, hey, do you want to do this? And you say, okay, I'm a little tired, but, and you start doing something or whatever it is you do. You start having more energy. But if you're feeling dull, like after a hard day at work, and your mind's like slush or heavy in some way, and you start telling yourself a story about how tired you are, 
what happens to your mind. It just gets heavier and more and more unworkable. And the same with restlessness. You know, if we look at restlessness in one way, like the worrying, anxious, restless mind, like a lot of times when we have that state of mind, we think with wrong attention, with wrong view, we think, I'll just figure it out. I'll resolve my anxiety by thinking it through one more time. But we're just feeding the beast, the the anxiety beast, right? Because the fact that we're giving attention to the anxiety, the worry, means that it it's deserving of our attention. But there's another way to pay attention to it that weakens it. Like one of the most provocative things you can do to the to anxiety is just say, yeah, yeah, the anxiety, it's unpleasant, it feels like this, and I'm not going to attend to the content of the anxiety, like why, why I think I have this anxiety. I'm going to put my attention here. But I'm going to be willing to feel the unpleasant Disturbance, I'm not afraid of that. I'm willing to feel that yucky feeling of anxiety or worrying or doubt, but I'm not going to attend to it. It's so provocative. It can almost feel like, we're, no, 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 you have to. It's like this sort of mind is dangling this in front of it. You know, no, look at this. Look at this. No, I'm not going to look at that now. It's so provocative. And, you know, it's like this is what we need to learn with the news cycles as they exist now. Because it's like there's always another thing going on. But do we have to look at it? Is it okay? Is it dangerous not to look at it? Or emails? Or just even a problem in your life. Let's say you had a difficult interaction with someone at work. And right now it's not yet resolved needs to be resolved, but it isn't resolved. And you're not, you know, you have ideas, but you're not exactly sure how it's going to play out, how it should be resolved. So it's unfinished business. Or you and your cat had a difficult interaction earlier in the day. <laughs> it scratched the couch, and you lost it. And but that, you know, that unworkable problem, that unresolved problem, it's like, doesn't mean we're not going to deal with it, but right now I'm not going to obsess about it. I'm not going to pick it up now because I'm practicing being willing to feel what it feels like when my life is unresolved, when there are problems that remain unresolved. Because that's just how it is as a human being. If we start living with the idea that every problem has to be resolved before I get permission to relax or before I have permission to put things down, well, we're going to live a dismal, heavy, tense life. So this is what's so profound about taking 30 minutes or 45 minutes to sit every day. And, you know, whether you're just using the whole body awareness as your primary anchor or whatever, however you practice, but by giving ourselves to the meditation anchor, being present, intimate with the body, Breathing in, feeling the body. Breathing out, feeling the body. We're learning to, like, right now I don't need to think that. I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to fantasize about this. I could, but we can do it. No one would know unless someone's psychic, but generally people don't know what we're doing. You can look really serene 
and be having a sexual fantasy or a romantic fantasy or like you're getting that two suitcases of those $100 bills or maybe four suitcases or whatever you might be imagining, the total annihilation of the world. But we would know. You might look really serene. You might have sort of figured out how to sit still. And, but internally, it could be you know, really tight, really heavy. But we know because we see if we're, if we're willing, if, even in just a moment of awareness, we can sense what's getting set in motion. What kind of mind, what kind of heart is being set in motion? It's really shocking when we ask ourselves that question. And this is the kind of question we should ask ourselves, I'm not kidding, hundreds of times a day. I mean, not in a neurotic way, but out of compassion. Honey, given what you're doing right now with your mind, what the mind is doing, what kind of mind is being set in motion? What kind of qualities of mind are being fed? So they're going to have more momentum, more probability of showing up and dominating the mind in the future. And is that the kind of heart or mind I want to be living with in the future? Well, no. Or maybe yes. Maybe you're cultivating really beautiful states like compassion and patience and fearlessness and clarity. But we need to be responsible. And so for these couple weeks, as we're looking at the hindrances, I um, Gabe, tomorrow we'll put a few resources up on our blog, and some of you are reading along in Ajahn Sushito's book. The link for this book is also on the blog. You can download the electronic version of the book for free if you want. And I think page 57, there's a chapter on the hindrances. And I mentioned, you know, you don't have to work with the five that I mentioned, craving, wanting, not wanting. That's a pair, easy to remember. Wanting and not wanting. So not wanting is aversion, fear, irritation, boredom, hatred. And then the other two are a pair, too much and too little energy. So restlessness, worry, anxiety, sleepiness, dullness, heaviness of mind, sloth and torpor. And then uh, wavering doubt. The kind of doubt, because yeah, doubt can be healthy, right? Like withholding, not drawing a conclusion, but just keeping an open mind about something. But when we're uncomfortable not knowing, and the way we're dealing with it is to keep thinking in circles, basically, like obsessing about the fact that I don't know, and going about, you know, using our mind in a way that's never going to resolve the doubt, but just sort of fretting about not knowing. That kind of wavering doubt is, uh, is actually one of the worst kinds of hindrances because it keeps us from practicing. You know, nothing gets resolved without practice. And so the re- resolution of all the hindrances is to pay wise attention to what's present. And wise attention generally means, you know, we're paying attention, we're being mindfully aware with wisdom. And wisdom means, just as a shortcut to remembering what wisdom is, wisdom means that you understand that whatever's being known is nature, not self. Now this, if you just hold that, like, not that you're going to figure this out, like what that means now, but 
the whole path, your whole spiritual path, is figuring out what that means. And you might have some intuition at this point, and then the intuition just deepens, or the understanding just deepens over the years, decades, who knows, maybe lifetimes of practice. Knowing the difference between taking everything personally, seeing things from in personal terms, as opposed to being aware and understanding everything that's being known in terms of nature. It's something being known. The something that's being known is something that comes and goes lawfully due to causes and conditions. Now, it's relatively easy. I don't know if you notice a beautiful sunset tonight. It's relatively easy. Like I took a, a little walk right before the program, and I saw the, the beautiful red and the clouds. It's relatively easy for us to see that and go, yeah, that's not personal. It's beautiful, but it's not personal. I mean, I, could, I can go there. I can think, yeah, it's too bad there are big buildings and the trees are in the way and you know, wish I were higher up on the side of a hill looking out and, oh, it's already fading and you know, the colors used to be there and now they're just there and now they're just there. And so it, it's, it is possible to make a personal problem out of a nice sunset, but, <laughs> but generally we don't. But when we have pain in the knee, or when somebody is doing something irritating around us, or we find out that we have a disease, you know, we have cancer, or that somebody might get elected president, then it feels like a personal problem. Or all kinds of things feel like personal problems. Now, it's not really a question of metaphysically, like, is this a personal problem or not? It's really simple and pragmatic. Is it useful for anybody for me to see this as personal? Does it help me? Because, like, for example, let's say you're in a really difficult, bad relationship or in a really difficult, bad job, or you live in a society that oppresses you, or you realize that you live in society and you're one of the oppressors. So you may, you know, in those situations, you probably do want to do something to affect positive change. But the question is, does taking it, is taking it personally helpful in bringing about positive change? It seems like from our normal frame, it seems like if we don't take it personally, we're not going to do anything because in our mind, in our superficial mind that hasn't really thought this through, felt this through, really uh, learned this intuitively, from our superficial mind, the opposite of taking it personally is, I don't care, I give up, I'm helpless, or something like that. But there's something that is not taking it personally and not giving up. And this, is, this actually is just a different version of the, the first few sentences of the Buddhist career as a teacher, right? So he had his deep insight under the Bodhi tree, and he hung out there kind of integrating what he had come to understand, practicing by himself, and then he decided he'd try to share some of what he had come to understand. And he tracked down some former meditation buddies of his who had left him because they thought he had gone soft because he 
he gave up on ascetic practices as an end in themselves, like fasting and other sort of extreme ascetic practices that were popular back then, 2,500 years ago at the time of the Buddha. And he just he decided that, you know, torturing his body was just torturing his body. It wasn't leading to insight. So he ate in a way that was helpful to maintain a healthy body, a comfortable body, a healthy mind. And he had some deep insight when he brought his mind and body back into balance. He tracked down his friends. And the first thing he said to them is, I found the path. I figured it out. I had insight. I know something I didn't know before. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is, it's not about indulging in sense experience and, or indulging in the world. And it's not about giving up on it, rejecting it. It's neither of those. And so this is what I mean when I use that word, nature, seeing everything as nature. It doesn't mean that because it's nature, it will never be mine. The sunset will never be mine. We can't hold on to anything. But rejecting the world because it's impersonal is a personal move. Like, I'm personally insulted how impersonal it all is. I'm so personally insulted I'm going to be nihilistic. right? It's like you see this, it's so interesting. Recently there's a lot of debate. There's some intellectuals um, here in the West that are really into advocating um, atheism. Hitchens and others, you know, some of you have read their stuff, I'm sure. Really interesting stuff. But some of them have become like fundamentalists about it. And it's, it's like two sides, you know. No, God, no, not God. So it's the same thing in terms of our, uh, how we relate to the world. There's attachment and then there's rejection. But there's also this middle way, which is how we deal with the hindrances, which is about being really intimate, really engaged in our lives, in our world, with our mind, with whatever feeling is arising. We're really intimate, and we're intimate because we care and because there's this desire, yes, desire, to understand, but no other desire. Just the desire to understand. Now remember, when we're intimate, when we're showing up, we're not putting the brakes on the personality or anything. We're letting life, everything, be nature. right? Like the sunset, when I understand that that's just nature, I just let it happen. When I look at my mind and I understand like the thoughts or the emotions, even really despicable thoughts, that that's just nature then I'm just allowing that to be. But it's being allowed to be in the space of awareness, this wise attention, which changes everything. So it doesn't mean I'm just indulging my terrible habit energies or I'm letting the world indulge its terrible habit energies, like injustice. It means I'm being intimate, and in being intimate, I'm giving freedom to the personality to respond, however it does. And sometimes it responds in really skillful ways and maybe sometimes not skillful ways, but the intimacy continues. And so we begin to understand like what's off and what helps because we're paying attention. We're practicing 
understanding and intimacy, not controlling, not this sort of idealistic, like I want the world to be this way for me. I expect the world to be this way for me. It's not fair. I don't get identified with those personal views. I show up, I connect, and I let the heart, body, mind respond, however it responds. And I stay connected. So as I'm responding, as this system we call the body and mind responds, there's that intimate feedback all along. And when I veer off into taking things personally, then the awareness sees, the intimacy sees, boy, this really hurts when I take it personally. And when I stop caring and I want to give up, the intimacy, intimacy sees that really hurts too. Giving up hurts. Being attached hurts. So how to be a human being, how to be engaged without attachment. And it's really about learning how to deal with these five hindrances. Because these five hindrances, like the best word for samadhi, it really is, it, it's nice to have something there when you understand samadhi that it's a unification or a gathering of the energies of the mind. But another really nice word is intimacy. It really it allows the mind, the heart, to be intimate, to see things clearly. And then another nice word to always associate with samadhi is that it's healing. It's pleasant in a healing way, in an inner way, pleasant. So that it has this wholesome quality, wholesome pleasantness. There's a, it allows the mind, heart to really connect, to really understand. And there's a lot of power because of the unification. The energy of the minds have gathered. So there's a lot of power in what the mind does or doesn't do. It has some umph. There's a, a simile in the Buddhist tradition. It goes like this. A, a heavy, a honed and heavy axe, right? So if you want to chop down a big tree, you want an axe that's really sharp and you want an axe that has some weight. And sharpness without the weight doesn't work. And weight, like a sledgehammer, without any sharpness doesn't work. And the weight in this analogy is the samadhi. So, and the sharpness is understanding. So the understanding I gave you in this little, I mean, there's a lot of ways, and you could read books and books about wisdom in a Buddhist sense. But the simple version of it is, is this self? Or is this nature? So every experience that's being known to have that question in mind. Is this personal? Is it self? Is it about me? Is it mine happening to me? Or is it just the natural and interdependent unfolding of causes and conditions? No center, just what it is. And that's true whatever we look at. Knee pain, sunset, somebody being a jerk over here, somebody being saintly over here, I'm saintly, I'm the one who's being a jerk. So whatever we look at, whatever we're aware of, that wisdom, keeping the wisdom, is seeing this is just nature. That given the many causes and conditions, it's not like it should be this way, but it is this way. And given the many, many, many causes and conditions, In this moment, it can't be other than the way it is right now. That's what I mean by nature. Self is like, I shouldn't be acting this way now. 
Well, yeah, maybe in some sense you should, like it's not skillful to be acting this way. But we should also understand that given the delusion in the mind, given the force of habit energy, given the triggers, right now it can't be other than this. Meaning, but, but knowing that allows in the next moment for some real change. Having really been honest and intimate that it's just this interdependent unfolding is a very powerful intervention in nature. When nature has this other aspect, this reflective, wise aspect that understands, oh, it's like this now, and this is what's getting set in motion, right? that nature can change. But if we immediately are identified with the thought, I don't want to be this person, or this shouldn't be this way, or you shouldn't be this way, it sort of freezes things up. You know how when we're with another person and we're kind of in that stance, you shouldn't have said that. Then it's like the whole situation freezes, right? Because we get into these stances, these fixed views, self-views, right? And we lose the dynamic uh, and the sort of enlivened dynamic of nature, and especially nature that has this feedback loop of wisdom, of wise mindful awareness, that reflective awareness that is aware like, oh yeah, when it's like this, it really hurts. When it's like this, it really hurts and it sets emotion suffering. Right? When that's being reflected back to the natural system, the natural system has that impression. It becomes different in the next moment because we've seen this doesn't work, this doesn't help. So, and we'll come back to this topic next week, but for this week, really make an effort to be interested in what gets in the way of the continuity of awareness, what gets in the way of the stability and the clarity and the collectedness and the intimacy, right, and the pleasure of a stable mind. What gets in the way? Now, it's a terrible chicken and egg thing because... How can you, it's really hard to see what gets in the way without the stability of mind. Like it takes a calm mind to see what disturbs the calm mind. You need clarity to see what disturbs clarity. So it's just the way it is. So that's why like even in a sit, we usually begin with uh, an invitation to sort of just stabilize things. You know, just settle. And that's why it's really important to find a posture that's comfortable enough. And then from that place of relative comfort to sit up as a reflection of your intention to be awake, to be clearly aware. And to do some things like self, self-soothing things, like just take a few deep breaths. Or, you know, after a while you get to know pretty well if you're a a mindfulness meditator, you get to know pretty well where you hold tension, like, honey, I think it's safe to release the jaw or to drop the shoulders or to release the tension in the brow or to release the grip in the anus, you know, to drop the floor of the pelvis, to soften the belly, to let it round out. I don't think I have to be in my fear response because I'm sitting at home, I have my magical meditation shawl over me, you know, I've got the conditions as 
nice as I can make them be. I think it's okay for this 30 minutes, as often as I remember, to relax. And really, there's no progress, there's no development to the practice if you're basing or if you're sort of driving your practice with tension. It's like in this business, the ends and the means are really in alignment. So if we're interested in the full, unshakable release of the heart, anybody not interested in that, right? <laughs> then, then the means has to have that flavor. It has to have the flavor of release. Now, this is that chicken and egg thing. So we, we have to be content with just a little bit of settledness. And then with the little bit of settledness we have in our mind, in our body, then we're sort of, on the one hand, appreciating the little bit of subtleness because that will help develop it. But we're also, this is the wisdom piece. This is the sharp part, right? So the, the heft of the axe is like appreciating the subtleness. And the sharpness of the axe is staying keenly interested in what interrupts the subtleness. Even before your subtleness is very settled, we're interested in what is disturbing How is the mind missing? How is the mind not valuing the settledness? Thinking that worrying is functional. You know, like now is the time. It's like all day long I haven't thought about calling my mom or cleaning the bathroom, but now that I'm sitting, I'm obsessing about this thing. It's like, you know what? I I can bring that kind of clear, wise, like, oh yeah, that's desiring. That's that hindrance that the Buddha was talking about. Or that's aversion. That's that hindrance. And now I can either feed it or starve it. So I don't remember like how to feed it or starve it, but let me just try something and I'll see if it gets worse. Right? So even if you don't remember any of the teachings, all you have to be aware, you just have to track the experience of the heart and mind to see if things are getting more agitated, more tight, more dispersed, more unworkable or things are settling, quieting, more collected, more pleasant, more stable, right? more clear. That's relatively easy to notice. Like that barometer, it's basically the barometer, how stable, how clear, how much inner pleasure there is. And we have to cultivate a taste for that inner pleasure. We call it joy. And then that matures into a sense of ease in the mind and heart. So I'll just end with this analogy and then open it up for discussion. And it's just a, you know, some people like these analogies. It makes it easier to remember the five hindrances. So the Buddha likens the five hindrances to sense desire. He says, just as a person who had taken out a loan to develop one's business and whose business had prospered might pay off his old debts or her old debts and with what was left over could support one's family. Might think, before I developed this business, before I I developed this business by borrowing, but now it has prospered. Right, so that feeling of coming out of debt is when we drop craving, sense desire. And when we're in Sense desire, it's like feeling in debt. Like, this isn't it. I have this obligation. I need to get something. I need to get out of debt. 
And he likens ill will, aversion, fear, hatred, all those qualities of ill will to um, being sick. Think of the last time you had a bad head cold or flu. You know, it's just like nothing feels good. When we're caught in aversion, food doesn't taste good. Have you noticed like when you're really angry at somebody, you might eat, but you're not really enjoying it. You know, or you might watch something, but you're not really enjoying it because you're fuming. You're enraged. And it's like being sick. Same thing when we're sick. Nothing is pleasant because we're just yucky, you know, achy. Everything doesn't feel good. It's hard to sort of get outside of that. So when you become healthy again, it's like being free of the ill will. He likens um, uh, sloth and torpor to being in prison and restlessness and worry, anxiety to being enslaved and doubt to being in a dangerous place. Like if you had a bunch of luxury goods, you're traveling along a desolate road where there are a lot of robbers, you know, then that fear, you know, like danger might be around the corner. That's the what it's like to be in doubt. So it's sort of graphic. And then the last image that he uses for all of the hindrances I find very potent. Um, there are some vines in tropical areas. I think it's in the fig family. And there are fruits in these vines. And they have, the seeds are really small. And so the birds poop them out. And in a tropical climate, in the big tropical trees, they'll poop. You know, they eat the fruit of the vine, they'll poop on the tree, and these, these vines start to grow right there on the branch, you know, and they, they drop their roots down, and they have a way of encircling, encircling the tree. So, I mean, it would take some time, but even these massive trees eventually become completely covered, so there's no part of the original tree left. Now, it's interesting. This is the image the Buddha used to talk about the hindrances. Because, you know, it may seem innocent. We go home, you pick up the catalog, and you're just kind of looking through. Oh, yeah, we could do this. We could buy that. And then, and then pretty new, yeah, and then probably some plastic surgery. And then, you know, a new partner, that would help. And then, you know, it's just like a new attitude. And then, and it's just like all of a sudden you're in a hell realm. And it started in a really innocent way, but then eventually, because greed is seductive in that way. That's why we do things like I mentioned. It sounds funny, but we, oh yeah, and if I won the, the lotto is at $280 million, you know, if I won that, okay, I'd, uh, maybe I would pay half of it to tax. And then, but still, I'd have 130 And then, you know, we start, it's like, because it's juicy, and then you start renovating this one little project at home. And then you think, well, yeah, but I could also do this and then this. Or with your future, you know, I could become that person and then and on and on like that. Same with ill will, like, oh, yeah, i got to get rid of this. and pick. So these things just get more and more. Same what I said with um, sloth and torpor. The more we indul- indulge in it, the heavier and heavier the mind gets. The more we indulge in the restlessness, the more wired and frantic we become. The more we get identified with the doubt, the more we rush to resolve it, which just causes the mind to spin more and more. So it would be nice to hear from some of you tonight your own experiences with what hinders the stability of your mind. 
and also what you've learned about working with the hindrances or any questions, of course, about what I've said tonight. So remember, you've got to point the mic right at your mouth like this, not up and down. Anybody want to begin? It's always nice to say your names, too. Yeah, Megan, you want to start us off? I was thinking, or I've been thinking for a couple of weeks about, um, I don't know if it's an idea or just an observation of, like, contact, um, particularly with hindrances, and sort of the difference between samadhi and having hindrances there is that there's some sort of, like, contact. For me, it's, like, with my heart center. Um, and so instead of paying attention to, like, the content or even what exactly it is, whether it's, like, aversion or... Um, grasping it's more just a question of like is there something there that's like that's like obstructing sort of that flow of samadhi or that like flow of um clear energy and for me it i don't know i've called it contact but i don't know what you would call it yeah well it just in the way that the word contact is used in in buddhism it would be contact with the unpleasantness or with the squeeze of the heart or with the contraction the energetic contraction. And that's really good because what Megan said, because you notice she said she goes immediately from the content of the hindrance to the crunch in the heart because it's the content that's seductive. When we're aware of the content, the tendency, the habit will be to want to continue spinning with it. But if we can go very quickly, and another way you can do that, like Megan has her way, which is contact, just remembering that something is making an impression or having contact with the flow or with the open space or whatever of the heart. But another way is like like maybe you recognize, oh, there's greed in the mind, and then you could just tag on, and it feels like this. And when you say the word this, then you go to what Megan's calling contact. It feels like this, or it's like this. right? And you go right to the essence Because what's relevant about the hindrances is that the unskillfulness of them can be felt immediately in the moment. Because if it's an unskillful state, it will hurt. It will have an ouch to it. And you can be aware of it. It may be very subtle, but you'll see its effect on that space of the mind. And then you'll you'll will have that sort of the, the telltale sign that you really you're intimate with it, you're present with it. And another thing you can say if you're struggling to do that, it's not easy for you to do that, can this be okay? You can ask that question. As an open question, you're not demanding that it be okay. You're, on the, you're, sort of, you're not sure that you have enough stability of mind to really be with the ouch, be with the contact. contact. So can this be okay? Is it safe to rest with this unpleasant experience right now. Let's see. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. Somebody else? Yeah, please. Robin. So I think something that's been troubling for me lately has been this third path kind of idea. I'm still working on that in my life. And feeling like the the we're so conditioned to do the extremes either to be all in or to completely reject. And right now I'm completely in the space of withdrawal and rejection. And the moments when I'm able to like really be in my practice and stabilize the mind, 
I can get a little bit in that third path, but then it feels like a tightrope. And I'm trying to get to a place where it feels more like a bridge, like it's it's some more stability there. And when I'm engaging in some of the hindrances, then it starts to feel like I just need to hurry up and run across this tightrope and get to one of the the extremes because there is a familiarity in either being 125% and whatever the mess is or the chaos is or engaging in sloth and the doubt and all those things, which kind of feels like rejection from whatever the mess is too. So really trying to figure out how to broaden that tightrope yeah. <laughs> in between those extremes to a bridge. Maybe one day it could be something else, a car. I don't know. Something that feels a little more stable and permanent, even though permanence, we don't mess with that. So <laughs> but in a relative sense, it, it's exactly right. So what does allow us to sort of be in that, that middle space and uh, we need safety. And when, if you're finding when you open to that middle space where you're not trying to control, trying to get, and you're not giving up, when you find it difficult, it generally means that there's a lot of, and it may not even be so much what's going on right now in your life. It might or it might not be. But it, it just means that there's some trauma or some pain or some suffering there, and the heart doesn't really trust being with it. So then what you need to do is like, like in terms of your practice, we need to figure out how to bring more safety into our practice. And often in Buddhist practice, that would mean cultivating love, surrounding ourselves with love and generating love for ourselves and for others. Because that's a very protecting energy. And, uh, and it will allow us to be in that middle space because what you described is exactly right, Robin, and it's kind of this feedback loop, between the swing between all in, as you said, and the sort of giving up and, you know, sort of despairing. They feed off of each other. And the, the reason why the middle place is so hard, it's groundless. We feel grounded when we're all in, and we feel grounded with the conviction that, ah, oh, forget it. Right? Like I was describing some of the atheists, they're very fixed. They can be very fixed in that view. Um, and so it's like a ground for them in the same way that a fundamentalist Christian or fundamentalist Buddhist might be sort of really tight and fixed. And that middle space is really ungrounded, which is exactly right. And so, but what do we use for, not really ground, but what do we use for safety in that ungrounded space? And the answer is love, right? But not an unconditioned love. And the interesting thing is love is really the same as intimacy. But love is that quality of the heart that is willing to be close and undefended and ungrounded and unfixed, right? And that's where the energy flows, right? Because now, because the mind, the heart isn't in a fixed place, then things appear... Our, re- our experience is being open, and it's more pleasant, right? And the energies can gather, and with that clarity, we see better how not to fall into the, you know, attachment and the rejection, the nihilism. But it's uh, a lot of us, when we first start a practice, we find it really difficult to be in that place. 
And so what we need to do is, at all levels, so like on a, on a relationship level, do whatever you can do to create harmonious relationships in your life, in all ways, with your family. I mean, you can't fix everything, but whatever you can do to stabilize your relationship, your relationship to money, your relationship to the communities you're part of, and then uh, be around people who are naturally good at love. Friendly, generous, kind, and model it. <laughs> you know, like learn how to live that towards yourself and towards others. And then it just gets easier to play in this middle ground. So a lot of us, you know, we've had difficult backgrounds or whatever, you know, or we just grew up in this society. And, uh, and so we have some trauma just being a human being. And especially if you grew up uh, with some abuse or being marginalized in different ways, um, then we have to, it's even more important that we do that healing work in order to do this practice. Because it, it's really hard to just let go of the attachments and to let the mind gather in that way. It needs to feel safe. And if we've been unsafe for a long time, we're not going to be willing to do that. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Robin. And it's 8.30, so we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. It's nice to just have a few seconds of silence and not feel we have to hold on to things. Appreciating all the folks in the room, just the relative safety of being together like this. And we can appreciate all the women, all the men, all the folks before us. They had busy lives, lived at difficult, lived in difficult times as well. But somehow they did their practice, developed some real wisdom and compassion, somehow shared it to the next generation. And now after many, many, many generations, now it's our turn. We're hearing these teachings. It's our turn to do the best we can in our busy, complicated, challenging lives and to become part of this stream of wisdom and compassion, making it realizing it in our lives, modeling it, living it, and supporting the arising of the practice for others. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.